Welcome to the Holy City Church Podcast Station. This is Pastor Angel. If you missed Sunday's sermon or want to listen to it again, you're in the right place. We're glad that you can take the time to catch up as we go through God's Word together. So I hope you're ready. But if you're not, grab your Bible. Let's get ready for what God has in store for us today. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-control, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control without dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first if they, if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanders, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own household completely. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in faith that is in Jesus Christ. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how to how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this word you've given us, Father. Thank you because, Father, your word is what changes us, Father, that your word is alive, your word is what guides us, Lord, and we ask that at this moment, Lord, that my words, Father, be your words and not my own, Lord, that we may be blessed and we may be edified and Father, we are just thankful because your word is powerful and true. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to enter a political campaign season and have none who is running speak or run any ads about any legislation they have passed or opposed? Imagine running a campaign, but never talk about what bills they voted yes or no, or what kind of proposals or budgets they made, or even no mention of any programs or any institutions. What would it be like instead of all that, we were, we were told about how the candidates treated their family? What if those ads were actually pictures and images and videos of how the candidates live their life? How are they when they're hanging out and talking to their neighbors or when they are sitting at dinner tables with their spouses and their, and their kids? 
Or maybe pictures or images or videos of them helping others in conflict. Or maybe pictures or images of how they would deal when they're sitting in traffic. How about if we will see graphs of not what money they have made, but what amount they have donated to charity? Do you think it would make a difference if we heard about these little things that make up their characters? I think it would make a difference in the way that we approach these political candidates. They claim that they're called to be leaders of a state or country, so I think it's fair to know how exactly they're going to lead, right? And it's fair to say that if you're going to be a leader, we need to know who these leaders is or are in the case of multiples, right? What about in the church? Would it matter what kind of life the people in the church live? I would say yes. And I would even go to the extreme to say that it is very important, the life of the people in the church. William Gurnell says, On holiness in a preacher's life, we either stop his mouth from reproving or the people's ears from receiving. Which means that if a life of a leader in the church is influenced by his life, the way he preaches, the way he teaches, the way he goes about, he's either going to stop teaching truth or the people sitting who are true believers are going to stop listening to what the preacher is preaching. This is because how a person's conduct, the person's conduct of himself indicates how he manages life and the areas of responsibility. And in the church, there can be no compromise in the area of personal integrity. Jesus himself brought this attention on the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be also be clean. And Jesus is referring to those Pharisees who, who are living a life of everything external. This is what my external work is, but they forget about the internal. And now we come to this letter, chapter 3 of this letter, and the Spirit continues to lead Paul and Timothy, and they're going to tackle the personal character and qualification of specific people in the church to make sure they understand what is required of them. And Paul starts, and he's going to start by tackling the overseers. It says in chapter 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. So what is an overseer? An overseer can be seen in many different types of roles in the church, especially nowadays uh, and throughout history. Some include elders, bishops, pastors. Uh, many scholars specifically like to translate this in this letter, overseer, as a pastor. But I like to see, I like to leave it just as an overseer because some of those roles nowadays come with a lot of limitations. Like a pastor, uh, it's limited to one or two in the church and they must have degrees and they must have school this and they must have all these requirements that we set and there's nothing wrong with those. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. 
But the idea here that Paul is referring to is a man who has a function in the church as a leader. So we know that it's possible to be a leader, not necessarily have a title called the pastor, right? There's or, or deacon, right? These overseers are those who take care of, they oversee and care for the church. They, they're looking over at the church and what's happening, everything that's going on. They're making sure everything is the way it's supposed to be. Everything's being taught. Everything's being done the way we have to do it. This person is also involved in guiding, leading, and serving the church. So you can see this is a broad expand, not just a pastor. It's a lot of those in the church that take on this role as leaders uh, who fall into a category of overseer. So that's why I don't like to just say he's a pastor, uh, especially with the way pastors are done nowadays. is not like the way it used to be back in those days. And Paul says, if anyone in the church has a desire to be an overseer, they are desiring a noble role. This means that whoever has a desire to be an overseer works in an honorable job. Paul knows Anyone in this role will struggle with leading through persecution, have to deal with false teachings and the outcomes of false teachers, and deal with the reputation that comes from those who abuse the church. He knows that that role of an overseer, a leader in the church, is going to have to put up with a lot of things. A lot of things that they don't want to put up with, but they're going to have to because that just comes with that job, with that role. We all know that if one pastor from one church does something they're not supposed to be doing. All the pastors take blame for it. They put it, not because I take blame or he did it, it's my fault. No, no, all the people put it on, or all pastors are bad, or all treasurers are bad, or all leaders in the churches are bad because one was bad, therefore all are bad. So we, we take on that, that pressure again because that's how people see us. But even if this comes to this undertaking, an overseer is something that, that needs, that's needed in the church, and those who desire to be one should not be looked down on. It's sad to see where, where, where we live in an age where, where somebody says, I want to be a pastor, and be like, you want to be a pastor? I was told that one time when I started. I was like, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a pastor. What? That's a terrible decision. What would you want to become a pastor? That's the worst thing you can do. That should not be looked on. Anyone who wants to be a leader in the church should not be looked down upon. But at the same time, Paul points out that it's just not for everyone. Just because you want to be an overseer, if you want to be a leader of the church, doesn't mean you get to be one. There are some qualifications, and Paul brings these up. Verse 2 says, An overseer, therefore, must be above approach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospital, and able to teach. So when we look at this, he says they must be above approach, which means blameless. Not perfect. I'm not saying a leader or an overseer should be perfect. But it must be a man without legitimate charges that can be brought against him, either in the court or by the people in the church or outside the church. He says a husband of one wife. This doesn't mean that an overseer has to be married. 
says if the overseer is married, it must be a one-woman man. And understand that he's calling for an overseer, leader, to be a man. And since you're a man, whether you're married or not married, if you are married, you must be a one-woman's man. And if you're not married, we all know all their scripture supports the fact that you shouldn't be out fornicating, right? If you're not married, then you shouldn't be doing things you're not supposed to be. But if you are married, that is your wife, and that is it. Now, he's also not saying that a man that is divorced can't be an overseer. We know that men can come into Christ, and there are, you know, uh, my scripture, we are allowed, that couple is allowed to divorce based on specific uh, circumstances, which I'm not going to go into today, but that doesn't mean if that woman leaves him because she didn't want nothing to do with him that he can't be an overseer. It means that if he's married, he's going to be lawyer, loyal to his wife. Now, this man must be also self-controlled. Some versions say temp uh, temperate. This means balance, not given to extremes, able to stay away from what is considered addictions and dependency on others and other things and other circumstances and other uh, medicine and, and things like that. That's not God. You must have a clear perspective, free from influences of passions, lust, emotions, and personal gain. You must be sober and calm in judgment. Paul says he must be sensible and respectable. He must be hospitable, which means that he's open to strangers. He desires to care for guests and those in need. He's a welcoming person. And then he says he's able to teach. This is very important because the leader and the overseer, those who are responsible for overseeing and constantly have to disciple and, and help and, and reach out, they must be able to teach. I'm not saying teach as in school, teach the gospel, teach the Bible. They must be able to communicate God's word in a clear way if they're going to have that kind of role that they're desiring. And then Paul goes on to bring four knots, which ultimately speaks and expands of having self-control. And in verse 3, it says, Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Overseers are called and expected to have self-control in a special way. They should not be led or controlled by any kind of chemical abuse anger or emotion or even money. That shouldn't be the reason why they're up here teaching or leading in the church or whatever it is that they're doing. That should not be any of those reasons. This week, actually, uh, I got online to do some uh, community uh, commenting, I guess. I don't know what's the proper... Not spamming people or, or, or anything like that, but... Uh, the forum and talking back and forth and different things are happening in the church and uh, there was this one woman, a worship leader in another church or something. Uh, she, she's part of the LGBT community, right? I guess. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you could say you're a leader and be part of something that God condemns, but whatever. Apparently her partner decided that, you know what, the Bible is true that this is a sin and therefore I'm going to go live my life for Christ and not for this. And she 
She wasn't very happy about it. So she decided with that anger she had that she was going to make a worship song. And she said, the gayest worship song I'm ever going to make. So because of that spite she had, she decided to make a worship song. That is a lack of self-control. Her emotions came in and, and pushed her to do something that clearly is sinful. Not to mention all the other stuff that is sinful, but let's just look at that example, right? So a person should be self-controlled. This is not to say you shouldn't drink at all or have any emotions or take any medications. I took some Advil this morning. That's not what he's saying. I'm not dependent on Advil, right? But I took some. This doesn't also mean that they shouldn't have money, right? We have sometimes the expectation to go to the other extreme and say, well, it's not prosperity gospel. That means that you need to be broke. That's not what he's saying. For those who are leading this church, leading God's church, it's not controlled by those things. Those things are not what's leading his life. Those things are not his focus. Those leaders never take those things to an extreme where it violates God's will. Meaning that an overseer's life is led by God and his word. And those things are secondary. He's led by the love of Christ's church, just as Jesus loved the church. And now when Paul specifically comes down to the household of an overseer, he says he must manage his own household com competently and have his children under control with all dignity. Let me ask you, who does an overseer deal with the most? People. They're going to deal with people all the time. Even when they don't want to, they're going to deal with people. So this means that he's always going to be around and dealing directly with all types of people from the church body and many times outside of the church body. And one way we can tell if a man is capable of dealing with people is by looking at his own family. How does a man deal with his family? How is he at home? How is he managing his household? Whether he has kids wife, whatever it is, how does he deal with his home? Because like verse 5 says, if he can't deal and he can't manage his own wife and his own kids, how is he going to manage other people? That is where you start leading first, in your own home. That's where you start. That's where the most important ministry that we all have is our own home. And if we don't have that under control, how are we going to come here to the body of Christ, which comes with tons of more issues and more responsibilities than our own home? If we can't deal with that basic, how are we supposed to deal with the church? I hear this all the time, especially from the older teens, right? And the younger adults. Well, I left church because we saw how my father was a saint in church, but when he got home, he was a monster. It was terrible. If there are failures at home, it means something is not being done correctly. And I'm not saying the home has to be perfect. God knows it's not perfect. God knows it's never going to be perfect here. And I'm not saying that there should be an extra pressure on families of the overseers. But those issues that are happening at the home, they need to be attended to. They need to be worked out. 
They just can't be left. And the homos have an atmosphere that should be according to Scripture. It should be an atmosphere of Christ. Paul in verse 6 also says that he must not be a new convert. Or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. So he's referring to someone who's newly converted. Someone who's newly coming to Christ. Someone who is just born again. In original language, it means newly planted. This is not to say that someone who has been converted a long time ago automatically qualifies to be an overseer. But what he's talking about is those with new faith do not have the spiritual maturity that is required to lead or oversee a church. He's not saying that they can't do the work. He's not saying that they're not capable of doing the work. He's talking about their spiritual maturity. That person has yet to develop that spiritual maturity because that takes time. That comes with time and, and years of, of prayer and work and, and, and understanding and teaching and being discipled. It takes some time. Being born again happens instantly. You're saved instantly. But the growth happens with time. And this one comes with a warning of judgment. If they do not take this qualification seriously, there's a good chance that these men will be filled with pride. Let me tell you, veterans suffer from this. Just a couple of weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago. Uh, and I caught myself later, but we, it was the holiday weekend. No one, uh, everybody was out. No one came. It was like four of us, uh, six I think in total, no five, not including the kids. Uh, we were like, oh, it's just Rafa, Corina, Mini Dani. If no one comes, we just go home and hang out there and we'll have our own little thing there at home. Uh, but somebody walked in, so we're like, okay, so I guess we'll have something. But I didn't want to bring the whole sermon because, I don't know, I just didn't want to do it. So I prayed God to help me uh, bring something. And, and in a couple of minutes, I was able to bring a short devotional, which you can find on our podcast. And when I went through the devotional, it was, you know, God bless us with it, with his word. And, and my wife says, did you just come up with that? That was in your sermon. I was like, yeah, I just, I was like, wow, well, you, you came up with that in just a few minutes. It's like, yeah. And I felt prideful about that. <laughs> Look what I did. In, in five minutes, I came up with a 20-minute sermon. That's so cool. I took pride, and I've been at this for a while now. So imagine a veteran that suffers this. Imagine how easy it's just someone who's coming to Christ can be easily filled up with pride if he's not mature enough. I call myself at home and I say, God, forgive me for being so prideful and taking it like it was something good. I didn't do this. You did this. How easy that was to catch yourself in that situation. Imagine someone who's new. We know what happens. People who are prideful, right? It's the same thing that happened uh, to sin, right? When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Pride goes before destruction. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. That's what comes with pridefulness. God is opposing you. 
So it's easy for a long time to believe and still falling to this. Imagine a new convert. So therefore, Paul saying, not the new guys. Give him some time. Lastly, verse 7, he says, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so he does not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The leader is to be an ambassador of the church. He is to face, he is the face that represents Christ and the face of which, of what is being taught. The leader represents the church. That's where I go. If you're going to go do something, unless you've spoken to the leaders, you've spoken to me, and we've blessed the fact that you're going to go out, you do not have it. You do not represent this church because when you go out and you represent the church, you're the face of the church, and people see that, so therefore, they're going to be like, oh, if he belongs to that church, and look what he's doing, uh, that's not a good church. That's a false church. You can tell about the church body by who the leaders are. So Paul says that he must have a good reputation with outsiders. He's not saying you must be liked by outsiders. He's not saying you must do whatever it takes for the outsiders to like you. But even if the people dislike you, it is because of the fact that you are fully representing Christ and His truth. More respect. It's not about being popular. It's about being respected. Which means that he must not just be involved in the work within the walls of the church. He must be someone who is not afraid to go out and get his hands dirty. So all this is not just criteria for what it takes to be an overseer. This is a challenge because those things are not easy to fulfill. Everything that Paul mentioned is difficult for anyone to fulfill under the state that we're in. But he also now comes to another group of people in the church, the deacons. So now he's going to tell you about the qualifications of a deacon. And what is a deacon? A deacon is a servant. It's a person that serves in the church. It's a little bit different, meaning that what we use deacon for nowadays, because the deacons in churches take a different type of role, but a deacon here is specifically a servant in the body of Christ. And yeah, it's okay to have different views on deacons nowadays, specifically because Paul never really goes into detail what it is to be a deacon. He didn't say, this is a deacon and this is what they do. So there are some flexibility on that. But the meaning behind this is basically comes down to having the idea of an attendant. Someone who is there to support and to serve the needs of the people, whether it is in church or outside the church. And they're going to do this in the name of Christ and in the name of the church. So Paul gives them the qualification for an overseer. Because again, this is the standard of a believer. So first he says a deacon should be worthy of respect. I'm not going to go into details because it's very similar. Also, he should be sincere, truthful, and honest. Not a drunk, but someone with self-control, grounded in, in the Christian faith. He must have a clear conscience. If he's married, then he'd be one wife, one woman, and being able to manage their own household with a good reputation. But he does bring two points that he didn't bring up when he was talking about the overseers. The first one is they must be tested. 
verse 10. They must be tested first. If they, if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. This is not a test. This is not an oral written test that they have to take. This is an observational test. How is the life of the person designed to serve? How is that life of that person who wants to be a deacon? So this is not something that comes with overnight. This is not something somebody new comes in, they want to serve. Well, let me just serve you for 20, 24 hours, and if you are, are meeting the standard, the qualifications, then okay, tomorrow you can be a deacon and serve in the church. This also takes some time. So that if you want to be a servant of the church, you, it might take some time that we learn who you are, about what you do, and how's your life, and therefore you can go on and do that. So the goal is to see if you are found blameless, not perfect or free from sin, but without pending accusations of any kind. And if you do have, then you can't serve. But if everything clears, then you can serve. That's the first thing he mentions, that he didn't mention before. The second thing he mentions is verse uh, 11. Wives need to be likewise. So he says, verse 11, Wives too must be worthy of respect, not slander, self-control, faithful in everything. So the way this is originally written, it leaves room for Paul to either be saying that the woman can't take part of serving, and this is their qualification, or this is referring to the wives of those who are serving. I can't say for sure what Paul is referring to. I've looked through many different commentaries. I got like five already. No one can say what exactly he's saying because it's not written in a way that's specific. But this is what I think, this is what I understand, that he's talking about women who wants to be servants because Paul himself in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, it says, I command unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church. So he's not condemning this woman for being a servant. So I guess you can take it like that if you want to take it otherwise, where he's talking to the wives of those who are that's fine. A servant is not taking on a leadership role. They're a servant. Either way, whatever you want to take it, Paul has the same qualification for the woman. They must be worthy of respect, not slanders, self-control, faithful in everything. So as a woman, whether you're going to be the wife of a deacon or you're going to be a deacon, you still have the same qualifications. Now you're probably saying, well, this this is for pastors, maybe bishops, leaders, servants. I'm not really, that's not really me. I actually want to stop you there for a minute be, with that thought that you have. I, wanna hear, uh, I want you to hear me out as I present a case on why this applies to every single person who calls themselves a true believer of Christ. I have two points. I think I have enough time to bring them both. So I'm going to bring them both. So the first case that I want to bring is that the fact that these characteristics are something that we should all be striving for. This is not specifically to just a leader. This is for all believers. Because we may not all be called to lead or to teach or to be a pastor, but we are all called to serve in some type of capacity. As we mentioned in previous chapters, Everyone has been given a different role in the church. And we have been given different roles for the purpose of serving. 
So we all expect it could contribute in some way. This is along with the fact that Jesus came to serve. And every one of us should use whatever gift we have been given by God for service, just like Jesus did. If Jesus served, we are no any different from serving. If he came down here and put and came down from his throne to serve the people, what makes you think we are any better? We are called to serve. So that means that whatever Paul's saying here applies to every single one of us. Because maybe you're not taking on this role of an overseer. Maybe that's not for you. Maybe that's not what God's called you, which is fine. But you are called to be a servant. More than that, we are called to live a life that's pleasing to God. Not so God can be pleased with us and love us and be like, oh, now because you're doing the right thing, I love you. But because we now have a desire to please him because of what he has done for us already. So we strive to live a life like this because of what God has done in our heart. Because this is a picture of a complete Christianity, we should seek a life like the way Paul is talking about. This is one of those things that, that I have to kind of admire the, the Pentecostals because they, they kind of understand this. You know, the wrong approach and the wrong reasons, but, but they understand that this is what they should be aiming for. Their life, they know that this is the life they should aim for, so therefore they work towards that. They work towards being good people. They work towards fulfilling what Paul's talking about. They work day and night to get there. I do think they do it for the wrong reasons. I've seen many churches that do it just to get up there and say, well, not because I lived like this and because I became a leader or servant, therefore now I'm saved. That's what many of them believe. So the wrong reason, but still they, they take this and be like, yes, this is what we should be living. This is a picture of someone with hope, someone who, who will go against the current of society because they know it is beyond what they're seeing. This is what we're called to do. This is how we're called to live. The way Paul is, is asking for the leaders and the servants to live is a picture of Christ being in every part of your life. None of us are exempt from being like Christ or, or setting our focus on Christ and making Christ the center of everything that we do. None of us are exempt from that. Of course, we got to understand that all this is only achievable because of the grace of God. But because of the grace of God, we can strive towards that. Now, the second case I want to bring to you, why this applies to us, it's found in verse 14 and 15 of this chapter which is that we are the pillar and foundation of the truth. I want to take you there to verse 14, where it says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I have written, I've written this so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Right here. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is how we should behave because we are the truth. We are the church, so therefore we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. 
So why should this matter to everyone? Because we are the church. Spurgeon says, when the church stands boldly out and preaches the word, it is the pillar of the truth. When it is hidden in the Roman catacombs and cannot proclaim the Savior's name to the world, still there is life. There lives the truth deep in the hearts of believers. And they are then the ground of the truth. That is what we're called to be. So what does it mean to be a pillar and foundation of the truth? We first have to answer what is truth and where it comes from. And many will find this to be an interesting question. What is truth? Many struggle to answer, especially in our time, because they tell you your truth is your truth. And that is what's true to you. Even if it contradicts everything else, that is true, because you wanted it to be true. But the truth is something that is not driven by opinions. It is not subjective, and it does not depend on circumstances or whatever it is that you're feeling in that moment. The truth is true in the past, now, and in the future. The truth is the way things really are. The truth is objective, and it comes from a source that is the standard of truth. And that source of truth is God. He is the standard of truth. Psalms 31.5 says, In your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. John 14.6 says, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the truth. Secondly, we have to know how this truth is revealed. And the answer is that the truth is revealed in the word of God. And by, the, by this, I mean scripture. God's word is scripture. Scripture is a revelation of who God is, what he has done, and what is his desire for those who believe in him. Scripture records his words and all of his truth. The scripture we call the Bible, the book of the Bible. And that's our book. We are people of the book. And the truth is what's in Scripture. So our mission is to be the body of truth, guarding, fighting, living, and proclaiming the truth that is in Scripture. That truth that comes from Scripture is what we should live by. That's the truth that we should live by. And that's the truth that we should be teaching. Andy Stanley recently made a bit of a disturbing statement. I don't know if you know who, who he is. I don't really talk too much about him. I don't listen too much. But so happened that within the last couple of weeks, he made a weird statement. I don't consider him to be a true believer, but that's fine. That's my opinion. He said, Christ, no, sorry, he said, Christians, Christian faith does not fall or rise in the accuracy of the Bible. It is on the identity of Jesus. You say, well, this, this kind of sounds like it's right because he's using nice words and good words, right? But it is not. It is not right. It is not true. The work of Jesus is recorded in Scripture, in the Bible. It is what points to us, to the real Jesus. Without the accuracy and the truth of the word, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. 
So everything does rise and falls on the Word of God, on Scripture, on the Bible. Because if this Word in this book is not truthful and it has errors, we don't know God. We don't know Jesus. And whatever's in it, if it's not accurate, if it's not true, we can't trust it. Therefore, we can't trust the work of Jesus. We can't trust what he did on the cross. Because what if he did it? That's not, we don't know if it's true or not. What if he did die on the cross, but he didn't die for our sins? We can't trust it. If it's not accurate, if it's not truthful, we can't trust it. You see, the church over time will take the path that's least resistant. And we know that we live in a time where, where a lot of people don't want to believe in this Jesus. So, of course, we have to find different ways to build our own Jesus. And therefore, we need to take away from Scripture and say, well, well, it's not. It was, uh, I believe, I don't know if it was a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, I can't remember, who was saying, look, this is uh, inspired by God and, and God is in control of everything. And yeah, God is all powerful, but we're humans. And since God told men to write it, men, since we're not perfect, we messed up and this is not the truth. So is God all powerful or not? Because if God is all powerful, why is it stopping him from making sure this is true? It's like, oh, you're humans. I got no control. I do the best I can. I told you, but you know, since you're not perfect, you messed up the Bible. We come up with all these ideas to take away from God's word because we want to create our own God, our own Bible, our own idea of who Jesus is. So we see how churches fall out of truth, just like we're seeing today. We have seen it in Christian schools as one day they're Christian universities and a few years later they're just regular universities. But we believe that all scripture is inspired and breathed by God, so therefore we preach and teach the Word of God. And nothing outside of the Word of God, because nothing else matters, only the Word of God. Because the Word of God is what changes people. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is true. That is what changes us. Because the Word of God comes from God. This is God speaking. And we need to make sure that we don't stray from this because we are the foundation and the pillars of the truth. We need to make sure, all of us, need to make sure this is still being taught, still being preached, and we're responsible for that. This means that when you drop your kids off at Sunday school, you're expected that those teachers hold to these standards that Paul's talking about. We're expected those, that, those who are going out on missions and serving the community and those who who are doing the work of, of the kingdom are doing it the right way for the right reasons. We're all expected to have all those who stand up here to preach and those who teach to be teaching and preaching the truth and living in what they're teaching and preaching. And we need to all make sure none of this ever changes. If a leader, if a servant, if whoever it is needs to live a certain way because of who God is and what he's commanded us to, that's what it needs to be done. We all need to keep those people accountable, whether it's me, whether it's a teacher, whether whoever it is, this is how you should be living. So therefore, if you can't live like this, you need to step down. 
We're responsible for that. We need to make sure this never changes because God's word never changes and neither should the church. We need to understand that the church is meant to be models of character, family, and relationship. That's who we are representing. That's who we sh people should see us as. They should see us as the body of Christ. And there are clear guidelines on how a believer who has been transformed by God should be living and behaving. And those who lead and serve have a great responsibility because of the influence that we have on others. We have all seen what happens when those who are leading and servants have bad theology and bad doctrines. We all see it. We have all repentant people. We have people who haven't come to Christ, who think they have, but they haven't. False converts. And we need to take this serious because our Christian commitment is based upon the life of Christ, His incarnation, His ascension, His redemption. And we are all God's people. We're all God's people on this earth. And I don't like it, but we are all looked at by the world. And I'm not saying I don't like being God's people. I like it. But what I don't like is that people are looking at us. I don't like that. But they are. The world looks at us. I'm not saying they should be. I'm not saying I like it when they look at me and they say, well, look, you, you, look at you. What kind of Christian are you? I don't like that. But they do. They do it. The world looks at us. They look how we live. They look at how we talk. They look at how we behave. They look how we do things within the church. They're looking at us. And yeah, our lives don't change people's life. It's God's word who changes people's life. But they are looking at us. It hasn't stopped that from me. So we must live a life that's in close relationship with God. We must live a life in good relationship with God. And when we are in a good relationship with God, we will reflect that in the way that we live, and people are going to see that. Hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. If you have any questions, would like to connect, or listen to our library of sermons, jump right over to our website at www.holycitychurch.us. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and remember, this podcast is not intended to replace your time at the church. So we hope you have a blessed week and talk to you again next week on Catch Up with Holy City Church.